This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to talk about Skin in the Game by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And uh, yeah, I know, you're, you're not used to hearing my voice on here other than at the, in the intro. Uh, those of you who've come along a little bit later and are more recent listeners, yes, I am the other co-host on this along with Eric from the EPR Creation Studio. I'm, I'm Jason, so uh, good to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this book. This is one of my favorite books, uh, one, of the, one of the best ones that we've read uh, during this project, so I'm really excited to uh, get a chance to talk about this. I know you also liked it, uh, Eric. I'm not sure you liked it as much as I did, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm 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 excited about this one. So why don't you why don't we start by uh, you telling us all what Taleb means by skin in the game, the title? Yeah, at the, at the very basic level, it's if you are going to benefit from something, if there's a potential reward for an action or a belief there needs to be a proportional risk that you're taking in in that endeavor. Uh, another way he says it is that skin in the game means you do not listen to what people say, but what they do. So this idea of people could say whatever they want about what they believe and what their beliefs are, but what do they do when they're alone? What, what do they do action-wise? And, and that's that's what they actually believe. So a very simple idea, but, uh, expounded in, in many ways in the, in the book, um, to where it, it almost becomes a, a, a ethical system in, in a way. Uh, so it, some other examples, uh, are the Iraq war. So if, if politicians in the United States decide to go fight a war in Iraq, they don't have the proportional risk in the sense of, they didn't go there with a gun to fight. Uh, there, most of them, they didn't have children go or relatives or even people they knew. Um, they went home to their manicured lawns. And and uh, Jason, do you have that? <laughs> yeah, that I, quote I love this. Is one of my there? favorite quotes this, here. This was classic. Yeah, this is one of my favorite quotes, where he says, uh, "What is crucial here is that the downside doesn't in, doesn't affect the interventionist." He continues his practice from the comfort of his thermally regulated suburban house with a two-car garage, a dog, and a small play area with pesticide-free grass for his overprotected 2.2 children. <laughs> so much snark. And this really gets into the political side of things, of, of the idea of politics being local, there being local politics and then the federal level, uh, politics at the local level, that that politician is more likely to have skin in the game at the local level. Uh, perhaps the, the further you get away from the local level, the further the, the less skin in the game that politician has and the less risk in the decisions that person is making for for a particular area. Yeah, he, he actually so, specifically uh, says bureaucracy is designed to insulate people from the consequences of their actions. So, and, and the, the more centralized something gets, the more dependent on bureaucracy it is. So ultimately, the, the more centralized and, fe- and, and uh, uh, the bigger a system gets, 
the more you're going to get this problem of injustice as a result of people not having not being responsible for uh, their decisions, being able to to hide their risks and foist their risks off on somebody else while benefiting from the system itself. And what's cool is is he talks about skin in the game and skin in the game of of you having proportional risk in something. But he goes further and he talks about soul in the game as well. And soul in the game is having risk for others. And I thought that was a really neat distinction he made. And he, he talks a lot about uh, the soul in the game as, as well as skin, skin in the game. Uh, also talks about what skin in the game might look like for terrorists. Uh, terrorists who believe that uh, if they if they do a suicide bombing, that they are going to be rewarded in the afterlife uh, immediately. Uh, additionally, that their families will also be rewarded financially uh, in, 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 in other ways. And he said one one way that uh, that you could have skin in the game for a terrorist is that the collective, the, their family would be punished for the act of the terrorist. And he he he's uncomfortable with a, a collective punishment, uh, a, a bad punishment for for family members of somebody who does this. But he 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 also says at at the very least it should be to where they're not getting money from other groups if their family member does the suicide bombing. Uh, and and it was just interesting to to see him take the idea of skinning the game and apply it to to a lot of different areas. How can we how can we put skin in the game here. Uh, and it just kind of also made you think about it thing, things in your own life or, or different areas. What would this mean for me to have skin in the game? What would it mean for this system, uh, for the, or the people creating the system to have skin in the game? Yeah. And, and one of the things that he uses as a, as a, as a primary example throughout the book is what he calls the Bob Rubin trade, which he sees at the, at root in the uh, in the financial crisis of two thousand seven two thousand eight, and you know this is something he talks about in some of his other other books, but he spends extra time on on why it's immoral, why it's unethical, why it's problematic in light of this principle of skin in the game, and he says basically you get all of these institutions and, and traders and and investors and all of this that are able to incrementally benefit from riding the market on the way up. And, you know, each day they're able to make a little bit more and they get wealthier and wealthier. But then when the when the inevitable collapse comes and it's a collapse that they largely have created, then they just scream, ah, it's a it's a it's a black swan. You know, nobody could have foreseen this coming. And then they get bailed out by everybody else. And he goes, this is unjust. This is injustice. Because they're benefiting on the front side, but they have no exposure to the tail risk. They foist off all of the all of the downside to everybody else. So they they continue they stay wealthy. They don't lose their their money. They stay wealthy, and the bailouts. Not only is it a moral hazard issue, which is how it's often critiqued by say economists, but it's reflective of a larger problem in the way that the system is designed to begin with in that it's not requiring people in order to make money to be vulnerable to the to the loss of money to to risk to put skin in the game so that you know if you can benefit from the upside then you dang well can be, can get hurt from the downside and he says that 
principle is critical to, you have to have that principle embedded in society or ultimately you're going to have uh, injustice and all sorts of problems in your society. Uh, and he, he uses this as a guideline to pretty much everything. And it works surprisingly well uh, as, a, as a guideline to uh, ethical behavior and structuring society and so on. It's just not easy to do, especially in a large environment. Again, in a bureaucratized environment, it's specifically built up to avoid those kinds of risks, to avoid exposure to those risks for the people involved in the, uh, in the, in the larger organizations. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a few questions for you, Jason, uh, from this book. Um, your area of ex- expertise, uh, Taleb gets into it quite a bit in this book. How did he do? So, you know, I honestly thought he did, he, he did remarkably well, uh, when he ventured into my areas of expertise, I, I, I generally am, I don't have a whole lot of, uh, high expectations for people as they step into some of those areas. And he consistently, I mean, I, I, it's been a little while since I read this one, uh, but I don't, nothing sticks out to me. I don't remember anything specific where I go, Oh, he just totally doesn't get that. Like I got that wrong. Uh, and there were some places where I thought he did. He actually understood certain parts better than a lot of specialists have at different points. And I'm of the view that in many cases, being a specialist is, uh, is a disadvantage, uh, and, and, and in this case, you know, I think he, he was able to, to locate and see some things more clearly than a lot of the specialists who, who don't see the forest through the trees. Uh, and you know, one, one good example of this is he, he mentions the parable of the unforgiving servant in the new Testament in Matthew 12. So you have a, a servant with a big debt who gets that, that debt waived by, uh, by the, the, the person the, the, the holder of the debt, he gets that debt waived rather than being sent to prison. And then he goes out and demands to be paid by someone who owes him a much smaller amount. And he makes a, 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 the insightful comment. He says, you know, most commentators see the message here as forgiveness, that you need to forgive your neighbor, right? You know, that, you, that, that the problem here is that the guy doesn't forgive the debt. And he goes, but the true message here is dynamic symmetry. It's, it's a skin in the game thing. It's a matter of of this person has been forgiven and now as a matter of symmetrical behavior is expected to behave the same way and then doesn't. And that that's, that's where this goes. You, he's to forgive because he was forgiven. And you know, that's a, that's an, an insightful point. And I think he's right about this. And, and there are a number of these places when he brings up areas of religion or certain areas of philosophy that I think he hits the, hits the, the nail on the head uh, hits it right on the nose. I mean, even his discussion of what what religion is. I mean, this is something that in religious studies, method and theory discussions come up all the time. And there's all this discussion of well, what is religion? How do we even study this? I mean, it's you can't even really define it. It's you know, kind of like pornography in lots of ways, but most specifically that you know you can't define it, but you know it when you see it, sort of thing. And he says, you know, it's actually simpler than that. And part of the problem is that people, when they use the word religion, don't always mean the same thing, but we can boil it down. And he does a really good job in that chapter, especially for a non-specialist there. I, I think he does a, an admirable job across the board when he's coming over into my area of expertise. I, you know, I, I gained more respect for him as I read some of those, uh, those sections. 
That's cool. Uh, why do you consider this his his best of the of the books uh, he's written? Oh, that's a good. That's another good question. Um, I think the main thing is that all of the other books. So he he talks actually at the beginning of this book about how each of the other books, like each of his respective books, came out of the 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 prior one. So Black Swan grew out of a smaller discussion in Fooled by Randomness. Anti-Fragile came out of a smaller discussion in The Black Swan. And then this one continues on with some specific stuff that was found in Anti-Fragile and develops those. But I think what I, what, what is most, what makes this one his best is that I think a lot of the, the basic insights from his other books are found here. And they're then rolled into a larger framework that I think is is especially applicable and and more suitable to thinking, especially applicable to everyday life, and more suitable to thinking about individual decisions about politics or uh, you know any number of moral or ethical issues that a person might uh, might have. This gives a very robust framework that builds on a lot of the other stuff and incorporates a lot of the other stuff. I still think those other books are worth reading, but uh, but again, a lot of the insights from those books, they're brought forward into this one, and this one kind of completes the picture in ways that those ones are all sort of more incomplete. Uh, so I, I think this one is, is, is his best book. That's cool. Final question. He says, courage is the highest virtue. Is it? Oh, um, that's a that's a hard one because it, first of all, I want to know what virtue list you're working from. So, you know, are you including something like love among the virtues? So, I mean, I, I if you're using something like love, if that's among your 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 set, then maybe not. Um, you know. You think about like the the, the the three theological virtues, the traditional theological virtues. You have faith, hope, and love. Well, courage isn't even among those, right? If you're talking about the four classic virtues of temperance or uh, sophrosune, uh, prudence or, or um, uh, phronesis, uh, phronesis uh, uh, or... Uh, and then courage, and then justice. So Andrea and Dikaiosune. If you're talking about the four Platonic virtues, those classic virtues, then yeah, you know, I think courage is probably the most important of those. But again, it depends a little bit on what list you're going off of. I think he's really starting from the classical virtues, and the reason that he argues for that, I think, is is actually compelling. And that is, if you don't have courage, then it doesn't matter whether or not you hold the others, because when ultimately you're required to stick to your virtues in the face of danger or adversity that requires that you hold to the other virtues, if you don't have courage in the face of that, then the other virtues are going to fold. So the others kind of depend on courage there. So in that sense, I think he's right. If we're starting from the, say, classical virtues. If we're working from a larger list that includes the theological virtues, or if we're working from, you know, the, 
the seven heavenly virtues, which don't even include courage, then well, obviously it's not on that list. It's a different, a different list. So uh, I would say it's super important that, you know, if you love someone and you don't have the courage to actually to, to hold that, then that's going to, that's going to limit things. But at the end of the day, I think virtues in general are, uh, they're self-reinforcing. They, they, they're force multipliers for each other one. If you lack one of the virtues, then that's actually going to submarine the practice of the other virtues. So, and I think courage is among the most foundational in that regard, because if you don't have the courage to hold to your other virtues in the face of any opposition, then you truly don't hold those virtues. You don't have them. And I think that's really where he's going here. And again, that plugs in with the idea of taking a risk and putting skin in the game in order to hold to what you actually think is valuable in order to hold to something. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not truly virtuous. So for him, that's the cardinal, the cardinal virtue of the, of the classic virtues, at least. Yeah. When he sa- he says at one point, uh, he says love without sacrifice is theft. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, um, he, he's, he's kind of right. And, and again, it's a matter of putting your money where your mouth is if you're not willing. So I would argue that love itself is a complete commitment to the good of another. It's not an emotion. It's, it, you know, the, the virtue of love is commitment to the good of, an, of another. And if you're not willing to actually sacrifice, then that shows that your commitment's not there. If you're not willing to, and he talks a lot about revealed preferences in this book, then you're not truly, uh, you're not truly loving. So I, I think he's right about that. I do think actually that is one place where I, I, I could quibble with a little bit of what he had to say, uh, about two things. I've been thinking about this since you asked the question about two things in my area of expertise that I don't think he quite got exactly right. And one of them has to do with sacrifice. Uh, and he talks about sacrifice where he says, you know, all Eastern Mediterranean worship was done with sacrifice. You know, the gods did not accept cheap talk and burnt offerings were precisely burnt so that no human would consume them. Well, actually not quite the high priest got a share Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But the thing is, actually, high priest didn't get a share of the burnt offering. Nobody got a share of the burnt offering. So he's not quite right about that. And secondly, a large percentage of offerings were not actually burned. They were cooked and they were communal meals with the gods. So a lot of sacrifice does not actually involve what we would regard in the English language as sacrifice in terms of giving stuff up. It was more like tailgating. Uh, it's tailgating with the god. Um, that's that's how I teach that. Uh, and it, that, but that's actually a communal act as well. And you're, you're still putting skin in the game there. So the larger points that he's making there, I think generally hold, although some of the details on sacrifice aren't quite right. Um, and one other place that I thought he could have done a little better is he actually, he makes this, this case that the silver rule that is do not do, uh, to others, what you would not want done to you is more robust than the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do to, do unto you, uh, because the negative is is stronger. It's harder to tell what's good and all of that. And I, I I'm not I was less than persuaded by his argument there. Uh, and in fact, there are a couple places where what he referenced as an iteration of the silver rule, I thought was actually better described as an iteration of the of the golden rule. And I don't think you can have the silver rule really without the golden rule. Or really vice versa. And to me, the golden rule already implies the idea that, uh, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, 
if you were that person, right? So it's not the some of the some of the issues that he he brings up there. I thought were a little stretched, but there's very little here that I had any any quibble with in that regard. But you asked, <laughs> so well, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I actually I'm glad you addressed that, that with the silver silver rule and, and golden rule because that that was also a question I had while while reading the book. So. That was helpful. Well, we're going to take a break and then we'll come right back with uh, each of our one thing, the one, our, each of our one key takeaway from, from this book. All right. So I will start with, uh, with my key takeaway for this book. And it comes on page uh, 176 of the, of the hardcover. Thanks to the camera, you no longer need to put horses' heads in boutique <laughs> hotels or villas in the Hamptons to own people. You may no longer need to even assassinate anyone. We used to live in small communities and reputations were directly tied to what we did. We were watched. Today, an uh, anonymity brings out the a-hole in people. So I accidentally discovered a way to change the behavior of unethical and abusive persons without verbal threat. Take their pictures. Just the act of taking their pictures is similar to holding their lives in your hands and controlling their future behavior thanks to your silence. And I, I loved this. It, and it was, it was a funny, it was like a, a funny takeaway, but uh, it also encompasses a lot of the lessons from this book of if someone is being rude to you or nasty, take out your phone, don't say anything and just start taking their, their photo. And he said he did this to two other pe- to, to two people, and they they end up covering their faces and running away. <laughs> but it ties in with skin in the game. Like, uh, it, somebody could just be yelling at you, and they don't think there's any ramifications for that. They're just so angry that they're going to take it out on you. But if you start taking their photo, well. What if you shared that with their family, or what if you shared that with their employer? Uh, and so it 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 br- it brings in skin to the game, and and it's just it's also a really helpful tip. I, I might start using that if if uh, if people are rude, just start taking their photos. So yeah. and, that, and he that talks about my, uh, he talks about how there's more tail risk now if you do. You know, he said it would be unfair to use their. He says, of course, I destroyed their pictures, right? But I never thought handhelds could be such a weapon. It would be it would be unfair to use their pictures for web mob for web mobbing. In the past, bad deeds were only trans, uh, transmitted to acquaintances who knew how to put things in perspective. Today, strangers incapable of judging a person's general character have become self-appointed behavior police. Web shaming is much more powerful than past reputational blots and more of a tail risk. And he, he's got a, again, yeah. it's a really good point. Uh. And just a, fu- a funny point too that that he <laughs> came upon this by chance, and but it'd be a really helpful tip for you. Yeah. So my one thing is his attempt to put a truly robust definition of rationality together, something that actually holds up under scrutiny, and I think he's got a really good point that rationality. You get all sorts of. Uh, discussions about how, oh, well, you know, that's irrational. A religion, it's irrational. 
And, you know, oh, well, you, you get a lot of economists, for example, that talk about irrational fears and irrational behavior that people have that ultimately you have to explain away through, you know, complicated that, that, that this is this is this is not the way that you should be thinking. For example, on things like sunk cost, you should never think about sunk cost because it's irrational um, or, you know, oh, well. You know, people are afraid of of, of sharks, for example, of, of getting attacked by a shark. But that's totally irrational because it's super unlikely to happen. And Taleb comes back and he's like, no, you don't really. First of all, I want you to tell me why that's irrational, why these things are irrational. What do you mean by rational? And he, he sort of puts the screws to it. And, and, and he's right that most of the people that have something to say about what counts as rational don't really define it. They just assume that it is a sort of mathematical type of thing, a type of reasoning, but they don't really define what rationality is. And, you know, he, he comes in and says something like, look, it's not really irrational to be afraid of sharks because, well, yeah, it might be unlikely that you actually get bitten by one, but... If you do get attacked by a shark, the downside is really big. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not always irrational to be afraid of unsurvivable things. And in fact, that's what gets him to his definition of rationality. He says, what is rational is that which allows for survival. And this builds off of the Lindy principle that he sets up in Antifragile. That is the idea that that the Lindy principle, that uh, which is that Time essentially reveals the strength or fragility or the truth of something. Uh, that the longer something survives, the the more robust or the more uh, the stronger it is. That survival is really the only true measurement of things. And he basically says the precautionary principle and sound risk understanding derive from this notion of. What is rational allows for is what whatever allows for survival, and that allows him to come back in and say, you know, <sighs> kosher laws, for example, kashrut laws, they survive for several millennia, not because of their rationality, but because the populations that followed them survived and managed to maintain their separate identity, in large part because of them. So guess what? It remains that the Jews have survived in spite of a very hard history, he says, because of, quote unquote, irrational commitments. But guess what? Those commitments are precisely what allow for the survival of the group. So maybe it's actually a rational commitment, not an irrational one. And he, he, does, he talks about this in terms of religious commitments as well, that if religion provides a group with heuristics that actually enable the the better the greater survival of that group then religion is not only not irrational it's actually the most rational thing that the group can adopt because it gives you shorthand heuristics shortcuts to foster behaviors and actions and activities that allow for better group cohesion cooperation and therefore survival and he's like, you know, we, you can talk all you want about how science or, sci you know, whatever is scientific and lab-based stuff or whatever is more rational, but try living your life by, you know, what we can discover in the, in the psychology lab 
testing a bunch of weird, you know, that is Western educated, industrial, uh, rich and uh, democratic people, which is actually a relatively small fraction of humanity, said you can you, you can you can find all sorts of things in the ways that they behave. And maybe you can try to find guidelines for life that way. But good luck finding ways to transmit them that are better adapted than, say, religious narratives, religious myths. And he goes, you know, there's a rationality to this that we have been missing. There, there, there's a rationality. If you, if you apply certain gambling principles to things, there's an, actually a rationality that confers survival advantage to the person who does consider sunk costs. That person's actually more likely to survive longer in, say, a poker game. So that whole reappraisal to me is, is, the, is one of the things, one of the strongest things that I took away in this, in this book uh, because of its robust quality for ways of thinking about life, about thinking about what's valuable and thinking about what really counts as rational. And there, there's, a, there's a strong undercurrent of what I would call a the right kind of conservatism in this book. And that is the whole, like it's, it's, it's a, it's this book in many ways is there are parts of it that are large scale restatements of the, the principle of Chesterton's fence, which is one of my favorite principles in philosophy. And and this is the, the, the parable that Chesterton told about this. Are, Are you familiar with Chesterton's fence? So is this like where if you come upon a fence, you, instead of, tearing it down, getting it out of the way, you, you first ask, why was this fence put here? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. And, but, but basically, this is, um, this is a, a parable that he gives. And he says, um, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. In the matter of reforming things, as distinct from deforming them, there's one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox, There exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let's say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer would do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think, then when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. And the principle there is that fence was put there for a reason. Until you really know the reason for it, maybe don't maybe don't tear that down. There's probably you know whoever was there, you know our ancestors who put that there. However long that's been there, they were human beings who reasoned and thought just like us, and they probably weren't any more idiots than we are. And in fact, if we're running running into that and just willy nilly trying to tear it down, they're smarter than us. So what? he keeps coming back to here is the value of time and the, uh, and basically the heuristic of looking at what has worked before and, and, and resting on that before we really try to do anything differently, because it's so easy to screw something up. Mm Mm-hmm. That oh well you know we can we can just we can do this better we can we can make this a lot better well you know maybe maybe the thing that's been developed maybe the practice that has been developed and refined over thousands of years 
maybe there's actually more to that than just, well, I don't get why we do that. We need to do it some other way. And there are a number of places where... When I liked it, how... Yeah, he, he would do that in the book where he, he would come across a new idea or one that he hadn't heard of. And he'd say, okay, before, before we take this new idea, what did the ancients say about it? And he would, he would give different examples. I thought that was great. Yeah. And, and, and so there's a lot of application of Chesterton's fence in here and his notion of, of applying rationality the way that he does or, or, or defining rationality the way that he does really makes sense in light of that. Again, look, if this conferred survival benefits to generations before us, maybe we should think twice about, you know, discarding it before really ensuring we understand what's going on here, because we might be, you know, putting a knife to our own throats. And that kind of, again, like I said, it's the right kind of conservatism. It's, it's not just saying, well, we must do things the way we've always done it, but it's, it's a warning to say, before we change the way we're doing it, let's understand that new things aren't just better because they're new. And oftentimes, as often as not, we, we screw things up. And if you've got people making the decisions that don't actually benefit or or that don't uh, have have their own skins in the game when they're actually making those decisions, then then let's just go with the older ways, and you know yeah. otherwise, let's try to organically build on what has been proven before, and we can iterate and we can improve, but we really need to understand that ultimately time is the judge of what works and what doesn't, and rat what the, what is most rational is going to be the stuff that's most time tested. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. Yeah. Well, that's a great recap of the book as well as tying a lot of the pieces together. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed the, the book. It's, it's, it's really funny. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the snark at the beginning. I mean, there's snark on every page. Uh, if you, if you have not read this yet, I, I, I want you to do something. I want you to open up the back of the book and just write hit list. And then write down everyone that he <laughs> he speaks against. It's all I mean, I did that. So it's like Steven Pinker, uh, Obama, Donald Trump, Richard Thaler, uh, Sam Harris, Thomas Friedman. It's it's great. The New York Times, uh, Piketty. <laughs> he just he just he goes after everyone, and uh, it's 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 great. Saudi Barbaria, um, as he can as he insists yes, on calling them throughout the book. <laughs> And he talks about, he's like, yeah, you know, at my high school, like I'm the only person, they've got a wall for famous graduates at my high school in Lebanon and pretty much everybody else was killed. Like I'm the only guy who, uh, the only guy on that wall who hasn't been like, hasn't been martyred or basically murdered and, you know, and killed. He's like, but you know, if yeah. I keep writing this stuff about Saudi barbarity, I'm sure they're going to send somebody after me at some point. But so, so just know who, <laughs> know that it's going to be them. You know, that sort of thing. It's not like that's a paraphrase, yeah. but he kind of puts that in there. Like you're like, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in some ways, the book's almost like a wisdom book. Uh, you, you mentioned some of the the sayings in there, uh, kind of a regurgitation of of ancient sayings, but uh, it was just very insightful maxims throughout the book and. Uh, yeah, both both you and I enjoyed it. I I uh, I struggled through it. I I know you're you're used to reading <laughs> high level uh, book. This this is uh, this is not for the faint of heart. And just even I, I track like uh, how long my books take per page, and this was on the very high end. So I I I read I had to read very slowly, and um, uh, but it's 
it's interesting, and I, I know I missed a lot in the book, but uh, what I did understand was was very insightful, and just even this di- discussion helped me uh, helped me tie even more of the pieces together in it. So, any any concluding uh, thoughts about the book or, or encouragements to 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 read it? Well, it's funny because I blazed through this book. <laughs> Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And so I just blazed right through it. But I was also in I was reading this at the same time that I was reading, you know, I was reading Rawls and some other philosophy that he's actually interacting with sort of uh, uh, not tangentially, but uh, but he's interacting with it uh, obliquely. And, uh, you know, I it's interesting because I think this is going to be one of those books that is going to be very Lindy to use his term. I think this is going to have a lot of survival long after he's gone. And this is going to be one of those books that as much as he just lampoons and rips into academics, they're another on his hit list. Uh, as much as he rips into what, you know, how academics are, are non skin in the game type people, which is not always true. And he knows it. Uh, but for many, that is true, especially those at, at elite institutions who are who have tenure and so on. They've they they're insulated from risk. Uh, but this is going to be one of those books that I think, even though he wrote it as a as I mean he's got his PhD and all that, but he's he wrote this as a non academic book, which is part of why it's actually enjoyable to read. Um, but I think this is going to be one of those that. In 5, 10, 15, probably 10 or 15 years, you'll see showing up on more ethics syllabi uh, and more discussions among certain types of philosophers, the kinds of philosophers who are, who are going to be doing work in Rawls and, and Kant and you know, looking at, at ethical, moral and ethical foundations and all of this. This is going to be one of those books that's going to be brought into those conversations because I think it, it offers some really interesting interaction with some, with all of those uh, those figures, and does it in a very robust way that provides all sorts of different thought experiments and so on, and lends itself well to that kind of that kind of um, that kind of discussion. So I know the next time I teach, I, I, I last semester taught a class on religion, globalism, and ethics, uh, and justice. That is, and next time I teach that class, I'm going to use multiple chapters from this book because I think it's very suitable to the kinds of discussions we had and getting getting students to think carefully about a lot of core issues. So I think this is going to be an important book for for many years to come. Well, with that, let me let me close with uh on the back of this book, if you if you get the uh hardcover, there's praise for Nassim Taleb. And here's the first one. This is probably the favorite my favorite quote I've ever written on the back of a book. The problem with Talib is not that he's an a-hole. He is an a-hole. The problem with Talib is that he's right. And this comes from Dan from Prague on Twitter. (laughs) Now that's courage. That is courage to put that on the back of your book. (laughs) So that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening. Uh, You can find all of our past episodes iTunes or your podcast manager of choice. Remember we're on, we're on Instagram and Twitter at books of Titans and a lot of resources on the books of Titans website, which is conveniently at books of Titans.com. Check it, check us out, subscribe, leave a review. And, uh, we'll be back next week with another book until then. Keep reading, keep listening and keep it real. <laughs>